Everybody and welcome and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited about having the guests that I have on today because I think they're going to give us a, quite a bit of insight in how managing a vertical family-run cannabis business, how difficult that can be, especially in this time right now that we're going through. My guests today are siblings in the cannabis industry. They are cannabis entrepreneurs. They are co-founders of MD Numbers, Inc., a family vertically integrated cannabis brand of MD Farms, Marie's Deliverables, and Legacy Coterie that provide a range of goods and services to the California cannabis supply chain. MD Numbers' mission is simple, to educate and to grow. Marie Marquette and Alan Hackett, welcome. Thanks so much for being a part of Let's Be Blah with Montel. Same. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's not often that you find a brother-sister team that's working in this industry. Tell us a little bit about First off, what made the two of you, did you do this collectively or did you do this one at a time and somebody brought the other one in? What made you go into and gravitate towards the cannabis space? So are you, Marie. Thank you so much for having us on the show. We're really, really excited to be here. Um, originally, I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I did not plan on going into cannabis, but in college, I created a lot of uh, passion for the plant. I really enjoyed using the plant. I understood the science behind it, the medical value, and I wanted to move to California and get involved in cannabis as much as I could. And when I moved to California, I would call Alan every day and I would say, hey, are you ready to move? <laughs> are you ready to move? Are you ready to move? So it was a process definitely for us to come together in California, but we were together in Tennessee in the past and always had a passion for the plant and him and I together were entrepreneurs all across from college till up until now. So we definitely, it's been a process to get to California and get together, but we, he was able to move out here in 2015. And that's when we were able to kick off a lot of our cannabis businesses together. And um, I should say your background, you got a degree, a BA in political science from the University of Tennessee and a degree in psychology correct? Yes. So that's, that's, really, that's not the, the career path that you would think of for a person that's in the cannabis industry. No, I definitely was going to go to law school. And I put law school on pause when I came out of college, just because the economy was in such a bad recession in 2009 when I graduated. And I thought it would be better for me to just figure out things that I could do that were very business related. My mom comes from a business background and and I was inspired to make sure I don't have to rely on the man, so to speak. So using the, the political science and the psychology, it definitely comes in handy, especially now with a, like cannabis is very political, as you know. And this the psychology of sales and the psychology of business strategy definitely helps me. Um, but totally not what I, what I went to school for. I wish I would have went and got a, a master's in business if I were going to do it all again. And Alan, what's, what about your background? You had a pretty storied history in the cannabis vertical before you went to California. Is that right? And you were doing that in Tennessee? Yes, sir. Um, I became a fond lover of cannabis at an early age, started smoking around 15 recreationally with friends and uh, kind of realized at that point it was something that um, I liked and wanted to kind of gravitate towards. Um, started operating an entrepreneurial aspect, selling cannabis to diff different friends just to have enough to smoke myself. Um, and that was, 
And if that's in a state where it's illegal or was illegal, still is illegal. So, you know, I mean, that that had to have been challenging in itself, correct? Correct. Yes, sir. Um, You know, getting caught with just a simple minor amount of cannabis can put you in jail. Um, I'm from Virginia originally and went to school in Tennessee where I met Marie. Um, So, yes, coming from that that place in the South is a lot different when you're moving to California where it's been legal in a medical sense since 1996. So um, I feel like cannabis has slowly pulled me out here. Marie as well pulled me out here um, to be able to kind of get away from that stigma, of, you know, being a target for individuals with cannabis and getting in trouble, potentially messing up your life, um, having charges on your record and not be able to come back from that. So very thankful to make my way to California. Yeah, it must seem really strange. I mean, I, I happen to, my wife is from uh, Jackson, Tennessee. Okay. And, you know, I used to spend, uh, before COVID, spent quite a bit of time in Tennessee and recognize how strange it is to be in an area of the country where, you know, you go one state north and you can have hemp, uh, you know, hemp bowls that you can smoke all day long. Mm-hmm. And it's illegal or that is legal, but then you cross that line into Tennessee and next thing you know, you're worried about getting busted. Yet there's so much consumption of cannabis in Tennessee. Right. Correct. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, crazy. So, all right. So you guys, you, so you went first, Marie, to California. Did you start your business and then invite Alan to come out and participate? So I went through all the, I guess you could say like business plan phasing, performas. I built out my business plan. I did all the e-commerce, the logos, and I knew I was going to start it in 2015 because I, my was concerned was things were going to move fast. And if I didn't, if I wasn't in business and operation in 2015, I thought maybe I wouldn't be grandfathered in to all of the new regulatory framework when I knew eventually Prop 64 would pass. So I got all my paperwork done and I had my menu set, everything ready to go. And I can't remember exactly how I'm like, but it was pretty much within that same time. Like the delivery was our first kind of baby that we launched. And the delivery started pretty much the moment Alan came out here, just timing wise. It was, it was perfect. So you had already opened up your own farm, your own uh, grow operation. Farm came next. Okay. So you applied for full vertical licensing. So we started with delivery and then we started with one delivery and based in the peninsula area in the Bay area. And then we went down and opened up a second delivery outside of Los Angeles. And what we did, we winded down the LA delivery due to a couple regulatory things going on. Los Angeles is just a little bit more of a, a web to get into. And then we, we ramped up the farm. So we always had the delivery first. And then our next vertical, we realized that in order to really compete in the market, especially in LA, we were going to need to control the source of production somewhere. And we wanted to get into cultivation. And that's where Alan was really like gung-ho. We need to get a farm. We need to start growing cannabis in some aspects so we can then vertically integrate this cannabis into our delivery and then any other businesses that we have. Now let's talk a little bit about how difficult that was to start your first, you know, cultivation, Alan. Yeah, um, it was pretty crazy. I mean, to sit, think back on it now, um, having no experience cultivating, having no experience or resources in the area that we went into, which is Salinas, which is a, you know, an agricultural area. So that, that was an advantage for us because we're not on the side of a mountain somewhere. We're literally in the middle of you know, one of the biggest agricultural areas in California. Um, but we had to put a lot of trust and a lot of faith into 
consultants and growers and operators that we definitely necessarily didn't know or couldn't vet their background because it was still kind of taboo at that point, being that it was cannabis. It's not like you can call up people's job references and say, hey, how good job, how good of a job did this guy have? He's a man of integrity. Is he, you know, a reliable individual? So we got burned in a couple of situations. Our first consultant grower ended up running off with a lot of money and a lot of resources and just kind of left us in the middle of the night. So we kind of had to like uh, hunker down and try to figure things out our own. Um, luckily, we were able to raise money from family members and friends and then, you know, money from our delivery service to keep the business afloat until we were ultimately able to figure out how to really properly navigate the, the legal compliant world. Because as we're growing, all the rules are changing at the same time. So not only are we having to figure out how to grow, how to be compliant, but also how to be able to create a product that's going to be wanted from, you know, our customers in, um, in the Bay Area. So it's pretty tedious, but. That is an issue in California. I mean, you have every single individual municipality has a different set of regulations and rules and, you know, packaging and those kinds of things. Did you decide when you started to grow to start your own brand or are you growing as, as, as a, you know, as a feedstock supplier to others? Yeah, at first it was kind of to start our own brand, but then it was really just to kind of have freedom, not to be able to have to rely solely on dis distribution networks to get product um, and be able to be stuck at those price points. We knew if we could create our own product and even sell it to ourselves or to sell it in a wholesale market, um, we could eliminate the distrib distributor, which is ultimately the middleman that makes about 15 to 20%. So we could cut that out, then that would ultimately go in our own pocket. So that was the original goal. Um, now, four years in of having a farm, you know, 2021, we're looking to launch our own brand and put on our own shelf. But up to this point, we focus mainly on wholesale so we can allow other distributors to take our product and put it in their bags and put in their packaging and their labels, labels. And it allows us to kind of cut that cost out right now and just focus on getting better at cultivating. And then 2021, we'll add that to our, uh, to our menu. Gotcha. Now. You know, talk about a couple of the, the, the challenges that you're, you're clearly minority, you know, owners in, in a business that ha, minority ownership is few and far between. Absolutely. I think Alan and I, we never started out, you know, with too much time to look around as to who we were working with and who was excelling and what the other uh, professionals around us looked like. But, you know, four years later, five years later, we looked around and very few people were able to make it from the old rules and Prop 215 into the new rules and Prop 64. And even less of those people were any minorities. So it's sad to see, you know, that there's not more of a springboard or an advancement place for a lot of minorities to come into the business just because of typical resources that we lack that could be in any business, whether it's the access to real estate, access to banking, financial technology, funding. Uh, a lot of companies that are really successful, they raised 50 million from friends and family. Um, Alan and I, and a lot of minorities, just like Alan and I, we do not have the ability to go raise 20 million, 50 million from friends and family. Alan and I were lucky to, to raise what we were able to raise, which we were able to get started at a much lower like monetary point because we started so long ago and we phased everything in. We didn't have to just turn everything on at one time. So it's really, really sad to see. And Alan and I basically try to do everything that we can to just show others that 
yes, it's hard. Yes, it's tedious. Yes, it's expensive. But if you're a minority and you want to get into this business, this is our industry. We created it. We have evolved this industry to be what it is. We've fought for it to be on the forefront of legalization in the way that it is. It's because of people that look like Alan and I and you, Montel. So we want to make sure that the people that are in the industry are aware of you know, the minority presence lacking, how much it is lacking currently, how much the funding's lacking, how much the equity programs all around the country are lacking. And that's something that we just want to bring awareness to it. It's, it's sad to see that you know, we, when I originally was thinking, I'm like, man, are we the only 100% owned black farm? Like Alan and I don't know. I think there are a couple other black farms um, and vertically integrated businesses, but I can't say if they're 100% owned by the two minority individuals, right? So that's one thing that Alan and I really, really pride ourselves on is not having to give equity up to anyone else for our farm and for our delivery. We've been able to keep 100% control and that's just really rare and something that we're really proud of. And now how do you do pick your you know, um, phenotypes and what you're actually growing? Right? Who, who does the research on that, you or Alan? Alan? Yeah, so the unique part about it for us, we have so much data based on our delivery service because we still sell well over 100, 150 menu items. So we're selling all the popular brands that every other delivery service and dispensary is selling. Um, but we also have the data that comes along with it. You know, buying patterns. What are people smoking? Are they smoking more indicas, more sativas, more hybrids? Um, price points. Are they smoking more indoor, more greenhouse, more outdoor products? So we can kind of take that data and, you know, kind of quantifiably take it and hunker it down into our and our nursery and select phenotypes that are more catered to what people are smoking. So usually we tend to um, create more hybrids. Um, right now it's more of an indicas, indica hybrids, wedding cakes, ice cream cakes, um, exotic looking thing, uh, exotic looking plants. We have lights in our greenhouse. So we have 300 lights. So it's a mixed light facility. So it produces a higher quality product than just outdoor weed or regular greenhouse weed. Um, a lot of times going into manicured as well. So we try to create, um, not just basic OGs or basic sativas, but some type of exotic hybrids that our customer base usually uh, tends to buy more often. And are you, do you have a processing facility or are you doing extracts yourself or no? Yeah, so we have a processing facility. We don't do manufacturing. So we either partner with a third party manufacturer or we just sell our trim wholesale to manufacturers and then make product that we will eventually buy back in, in, a, um, in our retail capacity. Uh, but for right now, we just process um, our flower in-house. In we trim it and then we process the, the flower buds and then the trim and then we sell the trim off or either we uh, partner with the manufacturer. And how many, if you had to just put a number on it, how many retail outlets do you deliver from? Um, so it's like two part question there. So from our farm, we deal with about six to seven ma major wholesalers, major distributors throughout the state. Uh, I'm pretty sure those distributors um, in some capacity are products touching hundreds of different stores. Um, not necessarily under our brand, but under their brand that they're white labeling under. Um, we had a deal with um, with um, with a couple groups last year that were even putting brands on different facilities in LA, like Cookies and uh, places like that. And then our delivery service, um, we sell you know 100, 150 SKUs. So you know we're dealing with anywhere from 40 to 50 different brands on a daily basis um, on the retail side. And I mean, you know, here we are now, we've hit COVID and I, I think a lot of 
you know, people in the industry have realized that it's almost been recession-free in a sense. Would you say that's true or, or have your sales suffered because of COVID or are you delivering more because of COVID? What? No, I think COVID has definitely brought out, put a limelight around cannabis and, you know, just how much everybody does use cannabis recreationally when they are in their homes. So our sales have went up, um, sales went up across the board from a wholesale perspective at the farm, from a retail perspective at the delivery service. Um, some of our best months were when COVID first happened. Um, Obviously, with that comes a lot of supply and demand. So, you know, we were having problems staying, you know, staying fully stocked on certain products and certain things because everybody was buying so much more. Um, so obviously that was good. That was scale, good at scale for us. So, you know, being in this industry, we we're definitely blessed um, during a pandemic to be in a business that is just recession proof. And now you guys do a lot. We're good. I was going to add to that on a. The delivery side, I would definitely say is recession proof. Cannabis in general mimics alcohol. You know, you're you're smoking if you're sad, you're smoking if you're happy, but there's definitely a point of location, 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 and being shut down. You know, California is about to shut down again. And if you're a storefront in an area that, you know, San Francisco, seven square miles, and we rely a lot on vertical business, literally sky rises everywhere that support all of the industry and the retail below it. So if you were in retail and you did have locations in these very, very dense financial uh, business corridors, we'll call them, you are extremely, extremely in the red right now. And COVID did not help you. And if every restaurant around you is shut down and your storefront is only seeing, you know, a tenth of what it was seeing before of the people coming in, which is happening to a lot of retailers. So I would, I would just keep that point where delivery was really able to do well. Wholesale was really able to do well. And a lot of retailers were if the location did not completely rely on business traffic. Right. And so, but I, I can understand that again, I've been looking at some of the numbers and been talking to different people about the fact that all over the country, it seems that the delivery services has gone up and I, I wouldn't counter what you say, but agree with you in some ways it's similar to alcohol but it's entirely different i think more people are starting to figure out how deleterious alcohol consumption on a daily basis is being hunkered down in your home how they can't get out of bed how they have a bad hangover and have, but then again if i use cannabis i don't have that same issue so it seems as if more people are shifting over to cannabis did you say that oh yeah i, I would definitely you know even in college uh, if I had a hungover, if I had a hangover, I'd tell my mom, my mom would say to me, you should have just smoked. You know, why, why are you even trying to get drunk? What are you doing? Like, so yes, I definitely think that being isolated in your house definitely has driven more people to using recreational drugs. I think that's been proven over COVID, just the isolation. Um, so cannabis for sure is a much better much better choice of medical use or recreational use, whatever you're using alcohol for to pass the time. Um, it's absolutely much more medically beneficial and less harmful recreationally and preventative even than alcohol. And I mean, even the what one red wine, one glass of red wine a day, they say is supposed to be all right. Like, I don't even know if I can necessarily well, believe that. Yeah, that's been thrown out lately. It depends on your on your body mass and who you are individually, I think. I don't think there's that, that um, you know, uh, one, one step or one 
you know, thing fits all anymore. I think people have now changed their mind a little bit about, you know, over alcohol consumption. We know that alcohol can really be extremely detrimental, and especially to your immune system, especially in a time like now. I've had some personal experiences with uh, people that have to take drug tests that previously didn't have to take a drug test. So they stopped smoking cannabis and just due to whatever reasons, naturally they started drinking more. And the impact that that had on them was so negative. And it was all created from the fact that they had to pass a drug test. Yeah, crazy. Well, look, I got to do a little something. I got to pay some bills, uh, take a little break. Let me take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, politics. I mean, there's a lot of politics coming out of your state. You know, uh, we had the former attorney general who is now the vice president elect who hasn't necessarily been as favorably disposed to cannabis as a lot of people think she has been. And, you know, what do you think is going to happen over the next couple of years? Hold that thought for a second. We take a break. Let's pay some bills and we'll come back. You've been watching, you know, Let's Be Blunt with Montana. Our guest today are two siblings that are in the cannabis business. Um, Marie Mamaquette and Alan Hackett. They run MD Farms and they're going to talk a little bit more about the schools, about what it's like to own a vertically owned cannabis company in this day and age. We'll take a break. You can listen to Let's Be Blunt Montel. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Well, everybody, thanks again so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guests today are two siblings and cannabis entrepreneurs. They co-founded MD Numbers, Inc., a family of vertically integrated cannabis brands from MD Farms to Marie's Deliverables to Legacy Couturier. They provide a range of goods and services to the California cannabis supply chain. MD, MD Numbers' mission is simple, just to educate and to grow. Marie Marquette and Alan Hackett, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blown Montel today. Thank you for having us, Montel. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's hit on that. You, know, you say your mission is simple, to educate and to grow. What are you doing? I, I will tell you that you know, I've done now well over 100 of uh, these podcasts of Let's Be Blunt. And I probably, you know, beat this horse over the head out of 160, 70 shows talking about, from my perspective, the most important thing this industry needs is education. And it's education, not just B2B education, educating business people on how to start a business. It's educating the consumer about the choices that they have staying on top of the most recent information that is, you know, being passed out around the world. You know, this plant continues even during this time of COVID as we're studying for and trying to perfect vaccines for COVID, there is still research being done on cannabis. And that research is, some of it is, is really profound. I mean, you know, I, I spoke to a doctor a few months ago who talked about the fact that they're finding that, you know, uh, there are several of the uh, phytocannabinoids and some of the other components of this plant that have higher antioxidant, anti-inflammation uh, um, aspects to it than even aspirin. And this research keeps coming out, keeps coming out, keeps coming out. But I think we as an industry do a really piss poor job of transferring that information to and putting it into the hands of the consumer who wants to make a choice for themselves and their family. So what are you guys working on when it comes to education? Um, it's like a two-part question, really. Uh, in a lot of ways, we try to educate not only for the consumer on the best products to use and what's new in the industry, but also 
um, trying to educate as a whole about the business, not just to other business individuals, but to individuals of color and individuals in minority sense that want to get into the industry. Um, so I think it starts there with educating other individuals that can get in to help educate people. Um, but from the day that me and Marie started our delivery service, we've been big on educating, educating individuals in our community that bought from us on a regular basis that wanted to get off pain pills and wanted to get off different things that they were on for their pain. And, um, you know, they could learn about edibles. They could learn about CBD. They could learn about different type of extracts they could use that could ease that pain and can help them in ways that they didn't even know was available to them. So I think in this day and age with everybody trying to fight for brand space, everybody trying to fight to get their name out there, not enough money is being spent on the education aspect of it because new products are being created every day. There's a lot of money that's going into research in the cannabis space. But I think this mainly because of the stigma the stigma is still there. So it's like people that are already kind of driven to cannabis, it's almost a sense of like, why spend more money to try to get them to buy something that they're already kind of prone to? Let's get them focused on buying a brand. And I think we got to get away from that and get more to educating about the individual um, benefits that cannabis can have because it's really there for us all. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're too busy trying to preach to the choir and it's the, you know, the choir that hasn't heard the song yet are the ones that really and, and, and I know that you guys are, are very, very big on, you know, social equity programs, which is the buzzword all over the country. But, you know, I mean, when it comes to social equity, in some ways you are the prime example, you know, having a minority owned company that is vertical, um, that didn't rely on someone else to start them. How are you trying to impact that social equity picture in California? For sure. I think Alan and I are exactly, as you said, spitting images of people that come from, you know, what could have happened to us would have been, you know, the war on drugs. We are from the South. Um, we've both definitely participated in cannabis in the South, and we're aware that we would be under the jail right now if the laws would have been able to kind of have their way with Alan and I, right? So um, with equity, there's so many pieces of equity and we, number one, just want to use our facility, like our farm. We work with a nonprofit called Success Centers, where we do a monthly sponsored tour where we bring a group that's interested in the horticulture, that's interested in horticulture. Usually they've graduated from Oaksterdam University, and then we show them the farm. Like we literally bring them to our farm. We walk them through. We answer any question. We're very transparent. We try to explain to them all the ins and outs that it took to get to that point how we operate in the day-to-day -day, and then what it looks like for them to potentially get operational in the same capacity that, that we are. And I take it a step further. I'm an advocate, of course, but I'm an advisor for equity applicants and in San Francisco. Um, so I'm helping with all sorts of really good individuals, make sure that people are not being taken advantage of with predatory contracts being that they just handed a piece of paper that said, hey, you get a dispensary, now go find someone with money, right? So those two things don't necessarily line up to make sure that the equity applicant is impacted and empowered in a positive manner. It definitely sets them up for potentials for their business to be taken or for them to have a lot of implications that they don't even understand, of course, because we're analyzing contracts that we may or may not understand. Um, so yeah, I think equity is, a huge piece. Alan and I in general, I mean, we we are equity. You know, we do represent people that come from social injustice. Um, we don't have any 
current equity permits or we're not like equity operators per se, but we are the definition of equity if it comes down to it. And I definitely make sure to empower and provide insight and business acumen to all the people that come around me to make sure that I empower them to be able to start a brand or I've empowered them to be able to open up dispensaries. And I have like, I never really know the impact because I, I say what I say to everyone and it's kind of up to them to take it and to make sure they communicate back with me. But it's beautiful for Alan and I to be successful so other people can see minorities be successful. And then we can take what we've done and actually offer it to other minorities in a very, very open fashion, which is not normalized and it should be normalized. But we show them what we can do and then we actually help them. And I've personally watched like handful, I mean, it's not like a ton of people, maybe 10 people that I've definitely coached and mentored become successful and empower themselves to create a brand, empower themselves to get a retail through processing and engage in leases and talk the talk, talk the real estate, talk, talk the business acumen, have a business plan. And basically they, bro, you can do this too. Look, there's nothing crazy special about what Alan and I have done. We just work really hard and we educate ourselves. And we put those two things together and we just phase everything in piece by piece. It's not like some rapid work. So it's crazy to actually just be able to be something that people can look at and be inspired by. And I think that's really important in a whole because I come across a lot of people that really want to get into cannabis, but they don't really know where to start. And at least taking advice and seeing Alan like give that tour and being able to ask him any questions is really, really empowering. So what do you think is coming down the pike here? You know, again, we've got a brand new administration trying their best to see if they can make it through to January 20th. And I, I hope that happens. You know I mean? We, we, there could be so many more weird things could happen in the next 30 days, but let's just plan on, uh, you know, this, this administration actually, you know, moving out and the new one moving in. But then when that happens, you know, we're also looking at probably the last, uh, you know, uh, we're looking at at least a five, six month really hard time when it comes to COVID. I mean, I don't think just because we are talking about the fact that there's a vaccine coming and might be deployed by the end of this month in some places around the country, it's going to be six or seven months before the entire population has an opportunity to have enough people, you know, vaccinated to represent herd immunity in some way. So, I mean, we know, again, that cannabis research is moving forward and there's some implications for cannabis and some of the cannabinoids when it comes to COVID. But do you think that this new administration is going to take the time out in the next six or seven months to even put cannabis on the radar screen? I wouldn't... Um... I mean, I wouldn't think so. Like you just listing some of the things that you listed off. I think there's a lot of pressing issues, especially in the next six, seven months. Um, you know, getting the stimulus package done. If this administration doesn't get it done, um, potentially extending that stimulus package. And then obviously COVID vaccine, vaccine getting out to the, to the masses. Um, yeah, I would think everything would probably stay as it is. And then we would hope for some, I think, common sense measures to be implemented, like the you know, getting rid of 280E and different tax statutes that limit us from actually being a, a, a normal operating business, even from a tax perspective. I think there's some little things that they can do to give relief to tax com uh, to cannabis companies. Also, yes. considering that there's more states that you know have legalized cannabis in some form that don't have it. 
So, you know, I think some common sense things would help, but I don't any big measures will happen over the next six to seven months. Are you guys lobbying or are you part of the lobbying efforts for the industry? I mean, you know, there's a, you know, I think one of the biggest things that the Fed could do is just figure out a way to make banking, you know, 100% easier for you. And there's some, some initiatives that are coming down the pike right now and have, have spread out like Kind Financial. I don't know if you know about them. But there are organizations that you can be participate in where you can literally get into a cashless situation. Finally, some of that's available. But do you think that that might be one of the areas that uh, this administration moves forward on? No. I mean, I think that in the reality of the matter is if you are a capitalized cannabis company, you're banking. Like, you don't have trouble banking in cannabis if you have money. You can go get a bank account. It's not as hard as it was in the past. We're more worried about the overregulation and the overtaxation than banking. Uh, kind of like to Alan's point, doing away with 280E so we can actually write off our transportation costs or our employee costs or our normal business expenses that make us profitable or even something like research and development. Um, very, very important things that other companies can write off that we can't. I just take it back to Montel, like, if it was that easy, we would be doing it. The science speaks. The science is clear as, as day. You know, we have no question if cannabis is healthy or medically helpful, or do we have enough peer-reviewed studies to prove X, Y, and Z? We do. We know that. They're there. The studies are done. Why doesn't the politics or the regulatory framework match the science? Well, that's a much bigger problem and question than Camilla and maybe Biden will be able to solve in general, especially in the next six months. Um, but there's so much research to be done. And to your point of, uh, you know, making sure that we're learning if you know cannabis could help COVID or THCA or CBDA and all the different acids that could potentially help. Um, we just, we won't know necessarily because the government is not applying these funds towards finding a cure in that methodology, right? It's going to Pfizer, it's going to Merck, it's going to these large corporations. I think last that I looked, the vaccine's coming out of Germany and it's been, um, it's gone through like six other countries, right? It's not necessarily like an Americanized um, resolution, so to speak, or like medical medical resolution, this vaccine, or even any of these other portions. Um, I just really think that if it was, if it was this easy, you know, we'd have more research in all these aspects of all the current terminally ill people and ailments that we already face, right? Things like ALS, things that have a lot to do with American society having a large population with these autoimmune disease that we don't have solutions for. So I think it's much, much deeper than, you know, COVID popping up and us saying, hey, we're going to apply time and money to see if cannabis can help COVID. Highly doubt it. But whereas it's being done outside of the United States, though, in other places from Israel to Colombia, China, even right now, are researching and answering some of those questions because I think the world has finally decided this, like, you know, the UN just took cannabis off his list as a harmful, you know, uh, 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 drug product. Um, you know, and, and that was only done because the United States forced the issue back in 1961, 63, 61 61, I think. Um, a lot of people don't even know that, that, you know, cannabis was literally, hemp was literally outlawed and banned for international 
you know, sales and distribution because of the same guy that pushed for cannabis being outlawed here in the United States, you know, Anslinger, who was a supporter of cannabis during prohibition. People don't know enough about the history of this plant to even answer some of those questions. And um, when it comes to more and more research, though, you know, I, I, I try my best. I, one of the things I do is I try to make sure that I, we have somebody who's an intern for us that literally calls all of the current peer-reviewed studies around the world, tries to once a month and sends me a report so that I can really take a hard look at some of the research being done. And there's some really powerful research being done around the world, not here, but around the world. And just like you just said, we're going to be looking in about a year at us having to rely on international sources of information rather than, you know, starting it off here in the United States. I would say that also mimics the cannabis industry in general in the United States due to the lack of funding, due to the federal uh, scheduling of this drug still being scheduled one, you see a lot of international investment and international companies ready to take hold of corporate cannabis in the United States and not necessarily United States backed funded companies. Right, that's true. So now do you you guys have, do you plan on maintaining your, you know, privately held you know, a company or do you envision, you know, a public strategy here soon or, or in the next couple of years? I don't know. That's definitely something to be to be determined in the long, long term. I would say in the short term, we're definitely proud to stay private. Um, Alan and I really like to be able to just make decisions in-house quickly and really accurately with just two people and not having to go back to necessarily a large board or um, you know, making sure that our shareholders are happy because Alan and I didn't make money for a long time. And that was because we were feet to the ground, head down. We're going to build this foundationally and then we're going to make money later. And that definitely helped us. And that's not always the case. If you go and you take outside investment and you give away equity and you're, you know, then you have to make the shareholders happy when we go public. And then you have to really be responsible for making money a lot faster. So I think for us, um, one of the things that allows us to reinvest and reinvest and reinvest is because it's just Alan and I. If we had, if we were public and we constantly went to the shareholders and said, we're reinvesting the, prop- the profit again. No, we're reinvesting the profit again. We're reinvesting the profit again. I'm not so sure that would be, uh, you know, extremely praised on the other side. Well, there's been lots of entities like yours in different areas from California, different places of the country, who have already literally been able to tap into, uh, you know, a pretty lucrative exit strategy. I mean, with what you've already built, I would imagine that or there would be different entities that are going out here right now trying to see if they can coalesce different companies around the country, you know, and they're doing fairly lucrative 20, 30, 40 million dollar buyouts. Um, have you been approached or are you keeping people at a hands length? Yeah, there's definitely been a couple opportunities for us to do some deals like that. There was a deal last year that was on the table for us to sell a piece of our farm for a pretty significant, pretty significant amount of money up front and with also a lot of money to keep building it out. Um, I think for us and what we've kind of come across is like we've done so much and so little of a time period and we're so young and so hungry that a lot of the things that we're doing, a lot of the groups that are getting bought out are our peers. So, you know, we can see a company that's getting bought out for X and we know what made them successful, what their pitfalls were. And we're like, well, if we could 
you know, duplicate that model and do it a little better and mitigate a little bit of more risk and cut costs here by being more vertical, then our company is going to be worth even more. So for us, the allure of building something a lot bigger than what we are, a lot bigger than what we think it can be, is part of the reason why we kind of keep going. Um, you know, at this point, obviously there's monetary gain, but you know, we're in the the industry to build um, you know, a, a, a to build an empire that's you know reflective of the work that we put in. So, you know, we have very uh, big goals, very ambitious to take this, not just across the state of California, but across the country and, you know, take our learnings and put them to where, um, you know, they're going to be valued a lot more than they currently are in California, just because, you know, like I said, it's been going on here since 1996. So we have a good opportunity amongst us, but we, we, we always, you know, listen to those offers and kind of see where the market is. And, you know, right now is a good time for us because having cultivation and having the outlets that we have retail, there are a lot of groups that want to get in and kind of just grab up everything. So, um, you know, we listen to it, but for us right now, it's just keep building what we got. And that, that must be part of, I was going to ask you, what's your future plan? So what are the immediate, let's say the one, what's the one year plan and what's the three year plan? Yeah, so we have uh, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Like right now, say within the next year, we're going to build out three new cultivation facilities. Um, so currently, we have a 50,000 square foot greenhouse facility in um, in Salinas, California, MD Farms. Um, we're going to add another 50,000 square foot facility on that same parcel. We're in the process of getting building permits to build that out right now. Um, down the street, we are building out two indoor cultivation facilities: one 200 light grow and one 400 light grow. Um, so we're in the process right now. We just got permits for one that's in Greenfield. Another one's in uh, Salinas. So we're building out those, doubling down on cultivation because we've seen, especially during the pandemic, you know, the, it all starts with the plant. Um, as long as you can create the plant and create a good product and taking the data that we have from our delivery, we'll always be able to be a tier above what the rest of the market is because we, we're growing for a purpose. We're growing for, for our customer base. Um, so for, for me, that's my focus for the next year. Um, and then that kind of goes right into working with Marie and distribution and retail, creating a brand for 2021, building out more d d um, distribution outlets and um, not just San Francisco and the Bay Area, but in L.A. and different areas as well. And then funneling all that through a brand through, um, through our delivery service. Right. And if somebody wanted to get into the business and, and wanted to get advice for you, Marie, would you what would you tell? Them? What would you would you tell a person who's really trying right now? They really their heart and soul is in cannabis and they'd like to be a part of the industry. What would you tell them? How would they start? Um, I think it goes back to just education piece. Of course, there's, you know, 20 or 30 types of cannabis permits. You know, which one are you interested in? Why are you interested in it? What about what your plan is, is special? Why is the market missing what you're offering? And then making sure that you have a good idea, but actually doing the research because, you know, there's, this glamour and allure of being in cannabis, right? Like, oh my gosh, we get to be in cannabis. But the reality is it's overregulated over and overtaxed so much that let's say you had a storefront, Oaksterdam will tell you it's 1% profit in that storefront. So I would say, make sure you love cannabis. Make sure you love being an entrepreneur in business because this is gonna be much harder than running any type of other business. It's just in every facet, the banking, the e-commerce, the regulatory frameworks, how to even apply the types of specialists that you need to support your business. Everything is just a, a step above the norm, right? Just because it's such a specialized industry. So do the research, make sure you really understand the permits that are available, which ones you think you have access to, 
make sure that there is also a plan for capital. You don't necessarily have to have all the money in the world, but make sure that you have a plan to make a business plan, a performa, have your financial models together, can answer and speak intelligently to your business so you can raise money. Um, but I would just say like, if you are serious about it, you have to prove you're serious about it. By that, just making sure that you're doing the research, you understand exactly which types of industry points that you wanna touch um, and what you have to do to get there. I always say, you know, no one can sit here and I can't tell you how many sales you're gonna do your first year, but you do have to tell me what your fixed costs are. You do have to come to me with a lot of your business pieces figured out because that's how I know that you'll be successful, right? Because you've done the research and you've taken the time to educate yourself. So once again, it's not super glamorous. You really, really have to love it. It took Alan and I, you know, four years till we were like actually in the green on most of our businesses. And you really have to be able to put in that, that same time and dedication to do the work now, you know, to actually succeed later. It's not going to be like some pretty piece of a, uh, you know, you know, money falling from the sky or something like that. More businesses have gone out of business, especially even highly, highly capitalized businesses that you've seen consolidation is running rampant right now. So you really, really have to make sure that you're going to dedicate the time and the money to something that you're going to be successful. And this is a really, really hard industry to be in. So educate yourself for sure. So thank you guys both so much. Maria and Alan, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montella Day. <laughs> really schooled a lot of us and you know i wish your business success um if anybody want to reach out and get some information for me where do they go md.farms.ca is our instagram right now and mdnumbersinc.com is our full website where you can find out about all the businesses excellent well i'll make sure that all of our our listeners and uh, viewers try to Go up on our website if they want some information. I want to thank you guys. Know that you have a home here whenever you want. And I thank you so much. And make sure that you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.